Election Day 2020 is less than two weeks away. Though early voting has been underway for weeks in some states, the presidential election day that we've been talking about for so long is almost here. But what we haven't talked too much about, at least here on this show, are the other races Americans are voting on as they cast their ballots across the country. This year, 35 U.S. Senate seats and 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are up for grabs, not to mention the 44 states with seats in their state legislative chambers that are also on the ballot. And many of these races have an impact on the agenda of the next president and the future of the American political landscape. Yes, the makeup of Congress will of course affect the way the next president can govern. Parties in control of each House of Congress can help a president carry out his agenda. They can also impede a president from any legislative accomplishment. But it's not just the national level races that lay the groundwork for a president's influence. And it's not just the national level races that can be influenced by the actions of a sitting president or a party's presidential candidate. The reality is, the outcome of state house races across the country will also end up carrying significant meaning for the future of our electoral landscape. They might carry more weight for the power of the next president than you'd expect. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. There may be no one in the Washington Post newsroom that knows more details about races at every level around the country than national political correspondent Dave Weigel. I talked to him about the ways these 2020 races might influence power inside and outside of Washington. Let's go ahead and talk about the U.S. Senate. Several races could change the makeup of the power in the Senate. What are some of the key races that you're watching? Well, there are a couple of races that both parties quietly think have just gone the other way. Democrats don't talk much about Doug Jones's race. They think it's disgraceful that a colleague they like a lot for somebody who's been scandal-free but is more liberal than, than Alabama is on track to lose to a former football coach who is not debating or campaigning or taking positions. But that's probably going to happen. And then at the same time, in Maine and Arizona and Colorado, there have been warning signs all year. There have been Republicans behind in the polls all year. And the party's still spending money. But if you look at where the major committees have made investments, uh, Republicans are now investing more in Michigan, which is kind of a reach. They've not been ahead in the polls, but maybe they can pull off an upset. They're investing more in Michigan than they are in the states I just mentioned. They're not quite triaging, but those races, they think, are possibly lost unless something changes. Where have the Democrats really pinned their hopes and dreams? Which races are they most invested in as a path toward winning the Senate? Democrats first focused on the places where Hillary Clinton was able to win in 2016, but Republicans represented Senate seats, and that's Colorado, that's Maine. Arizona, which Clinton lost much more narrowly than people remembered, which now we all treat as a swing state. They took that very seriously. They invested a lot there. And then beyond that, they're trying to win in states that voted for Trump and voted for Mitt Romney, but there's been enough weakness for whatever reason, the Republican candidate's problems, the strength of the Democratic candidate, the suburban rejection of Donald Trump. For those reasons, they think that North Carolina and Iowa have come online more than they otherwise would have, that Georgia, which has two races, could be more competitive. And they recruited in Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who resisted really until the last minute running in that race and has at the very least made it competitive. It's gone from something that the parties would not have had to compete in to something that both sides will spend more than $100 million running ads in. In some states like 
Lindsey Graham's race in South Carolina, a candidate's association with President Trump seems to be playing a significant role in their campaigns. How much of an influence is the president having in Senate races across the country? Well, uh, less than you might think. He's running his campaign, which has a slightly different map than these Republicans. And for example, he has to spend a lot of time in Florida, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania. These are places that don't have Senate races this year. And he's going back and going back and going back. At the same time, there are few competitive Senate states where he is that much of a help for the candidate. I was in Michigan about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer, where he showed up, he rallied, but an hour before he got on stage, the Republican Senate candidate, John James, gave a speech. Democrats responded to the speech, local media covered it, and then the president spoke, and they didn't share the, the lectern at the stage at all. So he's not a help for a lot of these down-ballot Republican candidates. And there are theories going out there that the electorate polarized in some way that helps them, that the fact of a Supreme Court nomination fight would help in some fashion. We have not seen a lot of that showing up in polls, even if people have strong opinions one or the other about the Supreme Court fight. That's why you still have someone like Lindsey Graham, who has not really had to work for re-election ever. That's why he is in a tight race, a ton of money is raised against him. That's why a ton of money has been raised against Mitch McConnell, though he's not likely to lose. And it's why a place like Alaska is still at least on the map. The Democrats are still investing in it. There's just places where they think that the alchemy of this electorate still has voters who are prioritizing other issues, coronavirus, healthcare, et cetera, that are open to voting for a Democrat. You say that Trump is not helpful for some of these Republicans who are running this year. Can you tell me more about that? Is Trump actually hurting some of these candidates? The president has mostly been harmful. He has never been that popular. He's had spikes that have taken him close to 50 percent during a, a crisis, but not that frequently. And his base, it overlaps mostly, but not entirely with, with the Republican base. Look at a place like North Carolina. The, did the president win it? Yes. He won it with less than 50 percent of the vote. He converted some voters who had been longtime Democrats in more rural parts of North Carolina, and he lost some in the suburbs of Charlotte, of the Research Triangle, of Asheville. He lost people who had been Republican for years. That state's been a good example of this dynamic because the Democratic candidate who outraised the incumbent, had everything going for him, was revealed to have had an extramarital affair. It has moved the polls, but not by much. You still find suburban women are so repelled by Trump that they're carrying it down the ballot in every way. So it's not been a help for a lot of these candidates when the president shows up and the president says some good words for them. In Michigan, for example, Democrats love it when the president shows up and says anything about John James because the president has struggled to get past 42 to 45 percent in the polls. James has tried to win some of those Biden voters as running as more of a change, independently minded candidate. Every time he's associated with the Republican Party, it's a hindrance. So it's not that they're all spiraling. It's that the president might not have the political clout in these states that helps them. He might have a ceiling that he passes on to these candidates. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Does Biden have political clout that helps Democratic candidates? So Biden is not unpopular. He's actually gotten more popular as the race has gone on. He's seen as more honest than the president. A lot of Republican messaging has been just throw up some dust clouds about Biden's family, about Hunter Biden to finally counteract this impression that one candidate is honest and the other candidate isn't. That's been a problem 
all year for Republicans that they've been very slow in responding to. When they had Hillary Clinton to run against, you can put in all of the 30 years of problems that people built up with Hillary Clinton for various reasons. But it, the basic was that they had a candidate the Democrats felt like it's sometimes they need to apologize for. So you'd watch a debate or watch TV ads at this point in 2016. In a close race, a Democrat would say, of course, Hillary Clinton was wrong to use a private email server. Of course, this was wrong. But Donald Trump. And it's changed the dynamic from a, well, we can agree that both of our nominees are flawed to Democrats being very happy with Joe Biden. This was one of the reasons why it was very easy for him to consolidate support from all these factions of the party as soon as other moderate candidates like Amy Klobuchar dropped out. Down the ballot, Democrats who were thinking about who they'd be running with were very worried about running with Bernie Sanders, and then to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren. And they were never worried about Biden. And Biden has not given them anything to fret about since then. The thing that you hear them worry about, because it's never happened before, is that Biden's not just not harming them. He's not doing a lot. He's doing maybe a couple events a day. He's going dark for a few days at a time before debates. Now that only happened twice. But he's not going to be like Barack Obama was in 2008, somebody who pulls out 80,000 people and the Senate candidate and the presidential candidate grasp hands and wave at the crowd. That's not been happening. But in lieu of that, they have Republicans tied to an unpopular president. And they're tied to somebody who voters seem to like okay. Let's talk about House races now. Which races matter most that perhaps people aren't paying attention to? Well, in terms of whether the House will change hands, both parties, the PACs spending money on these races, both are pretty skeptical that that Republicans are in a good position right now. In terms of getting a majority, it would only take them 19 flips. And they're playing in some interesting places. They're playing in seats they have not been able to compete in ever in some cases, like Oregon's 4th District. They put in a bunch of money early against Cherry Bustos, the Northwest Illinois congresswoman who runs the Democratic Campaign Committee. They've got some offensive targets, but they already conceded about half of what they gained in 2018. Uh, There's just a lot of suburban seats that have gone the other way. Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report has been pointing this out. The internal polls that campaigns release, it will reveal not just that, for example, the Northeast Pennsylvania district that Trump won and Obama had carried easily, that that is favored for the Democrat, you know, close, single-digit race, but the Democrats up. It's it's found that Biden is leading in that district. It's fine that Biden just has more robust support in a lot of the country. So when it comes to the, the races that could change the makeup of the House, it is less likely that Republicans win the House. It is extremely likely, inevitable, that Republicans have a more diverse class when they get back to Washington in 2021. And then they've got recruits, a lot of young military veterans, which is something the Democrats did effectively in 2018, challenging in Oregon, challenging in Texas and in Michigan. They feel happy about the caliber of candidate they've gotten if they're not quite sure how to win the House this year. It would take a massive polling error or a great improvement by the president. Now, we've talked about the Senate and the House, but what about further down ballot? Do presidential candidates tend to have significant influence on how things play out at the state level? They do. What matters more is whether the down-ballot candidates have money. And this is the difference this year compared to a lot of presidential years is that because it's a redistricting cycle, i.e. in 2021, a lot of these states, unless there's a delay in the census, a lot of these states are going to be drawing new maps for the next 10 years. And Republicans got to redraw maps in Oregon, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, et cetera. You draw as few districts as possible to pack in a ton of Democrats. And then in suburbs that are moving towards Democrats, you overwhelm them with big Republican electorate. You take one part of a town and combine it with a big rural area. So 
what happened in the last 10 years is Democrats got angry about this. They funded a bunch of organizations, one uh, Eric Holder's National Democratic Redistricting Committee, uh, the existing organizations like the Democratic Legislative Committee. They've got this money flowing around. You had a lot of people giving to down-ballot candidates via ActBlue, just wanting to give money and being told, here are a set of candidates that can help us flip something. They've done a good job of this because Democrats are on the upswing in some places. They've had an easier time getting traditional donations for people who want to play the field and make sure they're donating to the party that's in power. So Democrats have money. Republicans have a ton too, but it's less lopsided than it was in the past. And the battlefield for there, again, because of everything I was just talking about, is kind of limited. If Democrats won a landslide in Michigan, for example, let's say they win 10 points statewide. Well, they did that in 2018. It was not enough to carry along the state legislature. That's probably still true. So Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, states where Democrats hope they're doing well, think that Biden's going to carry them. They're at most hoping to break and prevent a Republican supermajority in Wisconsin. They're not that optimistic about flipping these state legislatures. It would take like a real Republican meltdown in the suburbs. Where they're really competing is Arizona. In Minnesota, they're trying to win the state Senate. Minnesota, literally the only state where two parties control either side of the legislature right now. The only one. There's 50 of them. And in Texas, they're trying to flip the state house. In Georgia, they're trying to do that. All of this to just have at least one seat at the table during redistricting. And they're in a better position than they've been in any presidential election. It's really only 20 years. Does the sun and the moon align and you're voting for president at the same time you're voting for all these state legislative offices? But that's the picture. And it's not a terrible one for Republicans, honestly. The Senate and these super down ballot races are probably where they have the most optimism right now. Is redistricting the only thing that's at stake with these state houses? Why is there so much investment in these elections? Well, there's more than that, but there's not that many states where... Democrats could gain a, a governing trifecta, we call it, when they have the governor's office and both have the legislature. Minnesota is really the only one where they think that's possible. There's a lot of states where they have Democratic governors. They don't think they're going to get the majorities there. But what they would like to do is have as many people in place so that if there are negative Supreme Court decisions from your view, if a new Supreme Court were to rule that abortion restrictions previously prevented under the Roe precedent are not, Right now, a place like New York could just have a special session tomorrow, and its Democratic majorities and governor could pass a law saying, all right, this is now the abortion law in the state of New York. A lot of states have either trigger laws, meaning the state's statutes say if Roe was overturned in some fashion that the state would ban abortion immediately, or they have Republicans who would be writing that law if that happened. And that's one issue that's just the one that circles around the Supreme Court the most. But there are going to be fights between these states and a Biden administration if Biden wins. And so they really, Democrats, I think, horizons and their expectations for how problematic it can be if states are aligned against a federal government's agenda. They learned a lot about that in the last 10 years. They saw states run by Republicans would reject Medicaid expansion money. And a lot of places have had to go around them and run ballot initiatives to pass those sorts of things. So there is a lot at stake. It's just redistricting is the one that they're focused on. And it's the one that excites donors because just the rewards are obvious. I mean, it, let's say it's a great year for Democrats and they flip the Pennsylvania state Senate. Well, in that case, they'd enter redistricting cycle with Republicans unable to force anything to the governor's desk. And that could be worth changing the map from one that Republicans win you know, eight seats on to one they win six seats on in Congress. And that could change the way that they govern for the rest of the decade. So those stakes are enormous. And this is the first year I can think of where 
people voting are pretty aware of what the stakes are. We focus so much on the presidential election. In what ways do these down-ballot races really influence the next president's agenda? It matters a lot what state you live in and what policy is going to pursue. It sounds obvious, but we've seen just this amazing divergence in, for example, what it takes to vote in Florida versus what it takes to vote in New York, or what it takes to get on Medicaid in a state like Pennsylvania versus what it takes in Mississippi. And so these are going to have enormous downstream effects for voters, no matter what the federal government's doing. There's a lot the federal government under Trump or under Biden would try to do that could be resisted depending on who's in control states. So you could have more than you have since really the 1950s, these pitch battles between a state legislature that just completely rejects what Washington is forcing on them. I think that would be pretty intense in some places, no matter who wins the election. And on the rest of it, we've seen there's an election to election effect of people deciding that their vote doesn't count and that one party is always going to be in control. The politics in Virginia, which is competitive, or in Iowa, which is competitive, are much more dynamic than the politics in a Mississippi, where it is assumed that Republicans run everything, so they're going to resist. And if you want a different set of laws, move to some other state. They really are going to matter. So you might vote this year and end up with a legislature that says, okay, well, thank you, Democratic trifecta in Washington, for this giant bailout for state budgets. We're not going to take it. That will have been a die cast by what happened in November. Not really changeable if you don't have a problem with it in February or March. All right, Dave, thank you so much for your time. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Before I let you go, I want to tell you about a new three-part series you can expect from Can He Do That? next week. That series focuses on the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration, and we look at one of the most notable transformations of the United States under Trump's tenure, hyperpolarization. Expect that next week. Thanks for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnik, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 